From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book. I'm Elizabeth Ferry, and I'm here with my co-host, John Plotz. Hello, John. Hello. And with our guest, Greg Childs. Hi, Greg. Hi. Greg is from the Brandeis History Department, and he's here to talk with us about why and how words matter in the conversations around the attack on the Capitol of January 6th and other public mobilizations of the far right. Uh, Greg is the author of a book forthcoming from Cambridge University Press called Seditious Spaces, Race, Freedom, and the 1798 Conspiracy in Bahia, Brazil. The book focuses on an anti-racist artisans movement in Bahia, uh, with particular emphasis on the organization and promotion of the movement in the city's public and private spaces. He's an expert in thinking about concepts of revolution, sedition, insurrection, and so on in the context of the Americas as a whole. So, uh, Greg, do you want to start us off by talking a little bit about, um, about your work and what it makes you think about the uh, events of the last couple of weeks or, or beyond? Sure, I can certainly do that. Uh, so, I think I, as you mentioned, uh, my, my work very much centers on the concept of sedition and its uses, its ability to sort of cover a range of so-called crimes that at the time of my research um, and the, the, the time period I'm focusing on, it was often used to smother any attempt to express claims of independence. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at uh, people of African descent who feel you know, that their life choices, um, their possibilities for advancement in career and sort of life in general are being halted by you know, a uh, prohibitive regime. And so as they organize and start to speak publicly, they're charged with sedition. And then they're later charged with conspiracy once it becomes aware, uh, clear that they were organizing to have a rebellion too. Sedition seems to be able to sort of have a life and attach itself to a number of kind of um, expressions of political conflict. And mm -hmm. I think what 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 helped me see that more clearly um, in this in this event that we just lived through is that there was a claim to be taking the nation back from. Uh, from those who had caused a broken uh, society to emerge. And it's this, it's interesting because the claim certainly st sticks according to how we understand sedition historically. Mm -hmm. The problem uh, uh, comes into play where in the United States, sedition very clearly and definitively became codified in law as any attempt to threatened with harm, with violence. The physical contact element became much more pervasive mm -hmm. in the US mm -hmm. context. Uh, whereas in most of these, most of the societies that you know I'm, I've looked at, whether it's Brazil, even in Cuba where I've done research, um, mm -hmm. even in France, um, revolutionary France, the idea of sedition is much more tied to speech. Right. You know, physical contact and violence can be there, but it need not be there. Um, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the very idea of a public threat, period, right. bar none. We've seen in the last, you know, really rapidly kind of changing vocabulary over the last week and a half, where, you know, you know, some of the some of the kind of signposts along the way have been protesters, patriots, rioters, insurrection. Um, 
and I think insurgents is kind of wrapped up in that, at least in the U.S. context. I think Biden used insurrection in his speech. Yeah, and, and like, kind of landing a little bit, at least within a universe of discourse that is um, condemning the attacks on insurrection. But you have some qualms about that, right, Greg? Well, it's it's primarily that concepts have historical life. Um, mm -hmm. And... I think what is starting to be forgotten is how much insurrection was typically associated with particular in colonial eras and in, 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 in areas that are still under sort of imperial rule or imperial design. Insurrection is normally levied at people who are trying to transform a society, not people who are trying to maintain a social order. Right. Uh, it's understood as people who operate without the strong support of the organs and institutions of the government, not those who, even if they're losing a presidency, have all the other institutions of, 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 of disciplinary action, of legal um, power at their mm -hmm. disposal. It's, 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 uh, it's something that I think is, we need to think more about what people have at their disposal um, in terms of state power, um, access to the most, most important organs of the state. Um, I mean, have police officers sliding aside and letting people walk through. <laughs> you have, you know, police officers in other instances putting their necks on um, young black men. So it's you have the organs of the state clearly in your in your control. They're clearly um, aligned with you. Um, mm -hmm. No matter if you're losing this presidency at local levels, people will right. still go back to worlds and states and cities where the re the, re the regime is very Trump-like. Is there an argument that we're that this is a legitimation crisis? Like, is that what we're talking about here? That it, because the word rebellion, based mm -hmm. on what you're saying, Greg, implies the 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 authority is no longer legitimate in its control of violence right. or force or whatever. And so you get a legitimation crisis if there seems to be somehow like a sanctioned response to that. And is that, I mean, are we at, are we at that point right now? Is that what, what people are fighting over when they're fighting over what to call this? Um, I think this is where I'm actually sort of like uh, pleased and perhaps a little um, hopeful. It seems like people are thinking about the future and history and what we're going to think about ourselves in this moment, um, which I think is a little, um, I don't think that's always the case in things like this. If we think mm -hmm. back to our lives, let's think back. I don't think most of us who were alive, um, of course it is now, I don't think most of us who were alive at the time were thinking about how do we, what do we call Rodney King's um, beatdown like over and yeah. over? How do we take this to the news? How do we like fight? Right. It's not, um, you know, this is not what you're calling it. This out of control black man. There, this mm -hmm. is this is police brutality at its highest form. Right? People got outraged. We got um, you know, uh, um, we got ready for um, whatever kind of conflict could come. But a sustained sort of um, media, like just shoving it down their throats. Like this is how you have to think about this. It yeah, has to critical. Be it's interesting because. Um, the genre of the side-by-side -side photo, right? Where you see, you know, okay, well, this was the response when the Black Lives Matter, people were protesting and this is the response. I think that really kind of, it's sort of the visual expression of what you're describing, this kind of self-consciousness. Yeah, I think we're doing that now. I think people are doing that. And I think um, I think the politics of naming are, are is, is taking place because 
think it's very critical how this gets described, how this gets um, marked, how this gets, um, in whatever case we may think of it, um, archived, whether we're talking about like at the state level, at a local level, we, then we need to think about uh, very, very carefully what words we're using because yeah. some of them really do matter. And yeah, it, I think it's, it, it seems significant that we don't even have, we haven't agreed for the purposes of this podcast on what we're calling the Capitol Hill incident, right? We're, we're still, I mean, like a year from yeah. now, what are, what's the Wikipedia article going to be called? You know? Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's, I haven't, I never fully thought it out. I mean, just, that's what it, it's always seemed to me from the moment I heard insurrection, I thought, I don't know yeah. how this is an insurrection for people in power. This right. seems like they're trying to pre- that they see a revolution already happening and that for this is this is the counter like i see, I see right. this is counter revolution huh wow <laughs> counter yeah. that's even a better way of putting it counter insurgency i don't i don't see counter insurgency not, they yeah. have the they have the they have control of the state right they have control of the state they have control of the, they have control of the, they don't okay maybe not control <laughs> maybe that's too harsh of language for some people but they have an accord, say that, with a uh -huh. number of organs from the Supreme Court all the way down to the police. They yeah. have an already accord. And that right. speaks volumes about when you think about what's happening to your country, if you're on that side of the ball game, I can see how you would see yourself losing everything that's been worked for in the last four to five years in terms right. of making this country one where you don't have to hide where you don't have to be in the shadows with your racism, where you right. get to be fully and completely who you are, even if people have cameras on you and you can tell them, yes, I believe in white supremacy. I've, def yeah. you know, I've definitely seen those videos floating around. On yeah. uh, and so you get this, this, this society where they're, they're really feeling, they're really feeling this and like, all right, we've turned a corner. This is our country again, and we're never giving it up. And right. here we go. And they won. There's no way they won. There's no way they won. Right. <laughs> Nobody I know, but it's, it becomes this narrative of you know, corruption was already baked into it. Um, and why do we even, uh, why do we even play this game? Right. You know, sedition doesn't have to have anything to do with, um, you know, actually attacking the organs of, of government. Um, mm -hmm. it, it could very well be, um, you know, just putting yourself in a position where a movement or an, an environment is happening around you and you just happen to be working in it. Case in fact, there's this major cons seditious conspiracy in um, Portugal in 1758. Um, uh, it's an attempt on the life uh, of King doesn't work but it's an absolute attack on royalty and that is what makes this a case of treasonous sedition um mm -hmm. uh, yeah this is what makes it a case of treasonous sedition and once that sort of um once that category of of crime has been you know placed on this entire you know area made up so to speak of um three or four families estates all those people working in it are also engaged in seditious conspiracy let me ask you, both of you, um, so we just came off a conversation with David Cunningham about asymmetrical policing and about the sort of um, both coded and not so coded racializing of different, you know, uh, descriptions of, of protest or social action or social movements. And that's clearly a dimension here. And 
from your work, um, uh, I know that it's a dimension of what was happening in, in Bahia as well. Um, how, do, how does, you know, questions about race get sort of smuggled in or, or just carried in through in these conversations? Well, I would, I would say in um, the era I, I'm working in, you know, and I think it's, I mean, you, 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 you see and continue to see arguments about this in the U.S. context with John Brown, but it's totally, it's different because of the landscape of Latin America and the way um, people think about, you know, what does wealth do for you as a light-skinned person? You become mm -hmm. white. You're not passing. You just understood as white in the everyday social order. Um, I think what what happens it happens in the exact opposite way too. Too much closeness to blackness will get you labeled as 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 someone who's um, part of a black rebellion. And right. so, you know, um, one of the strongest cases of this um, in my research is a guy who is a teacher of Latin grammar, and you know. Surprise, surprise, teachers didn't make a lot of money back then either. So <laughs> he's, he's uh, you know, not, not making a lot of money. He gets involved in this conspiracy um, because he happens to know and have conversations on the regular with a couple of um, organizers. He gets involved in it and gets arrested. And he is sentenced to 50 lashes in public. Um, now, at the last minute, that's commuted, and he is sent to non-speaking, uh, to non-Portuguese speaking parts of Africa. So to kind of totally like put him wow. in, in no man's land. Um, but in both of those cases, the the the, the jurisdiction, the, the the judgment is that this was a crime carried out by a cast of mulattoes. So he's right. become part of that cast. Um, he's sent as a white man to Africa in a place that where there are no porch so you know the, the idea is that he can't lean on anything to sort of like uh prop himself up and move through this order so in, in that world i think you get cl classified as black whereas i think you know here um that happens that it's not a, a it's not a unique phenomenon um in brazil that white people get involved in rebellions that um are primarily about ending slavery um mm -hmm. and, so that's not a unique thing. I think, you know, when it, when it happens in the United States, it just becomes a question of, um, do we classify this as, you know, a race traitor if you're on one side of this historical right. or do you classify this as someone who um, was just a man of, man of his time and some of it was good, some of it was bad, or right. think of him as, you know, a white, um, one, one of the few white men who, you know, was actually fighting for, um, you know, black liberation. Yeah, anyway, or a visionary. That's another one. Yeah. So you look at it in those 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 registers. Um, but I, you know, if, if we take this to like current um, situations, right, from Charlottesville to, you know, the Capitol, there isn't a narrative afterwards of these white people all of a sudden being black. <laughs> it's just, they, no. they continue to be white. And um, I think that's very interesting that, you know, you can, you can participate, you can participate in such actions and not really um, lose the prerogatives of whiteness, even if you're so-called publicly shamed. Um, right. 
because you know you and I were when we were talking before you were mentioning um Hannah Arendt on revolution and I was thinking about that a lot too and I was going to ask you how you think about this distinction that she makes between in her mind the kind of valorized political revolution versus the dangers of a social revolution so I I admire Arendt a lot as as listeners of the podcast will know, but like in the in her, what she praises in the American Revolution seems like a capacity to make a distinction that I hear you saying is actually a bad faith distinction, doesn't really exist because the distinction is between abstract theoretical claims for conceptual categories like equality, universal human rights, things that are known as goods for all versus what Arendt says is kind of like the contamination and the emotional complications of social role um, privilege. And she just kind of wants to bracket those. But I hear you saying that it's, it's that there's something shaky about that logic. Is that, am I reading you right or? Yeah, yeah I mean, if we're gonna cut to the chase here. I yeah. mean, I really, I, I think, I think her problem with, in terms of the social and the political, is that she ref she re she refuses to see that any of these lofty concepts are all concepts about controlling the bare rights of life. Um, that if the mm -hmm. social is just about people working and toiling and they never rise they never rise to the level of, of thought, um, it's more a question of this is this is the result of a conflict over who gets to distribute and control rights. And mm -hmm. for that, at that level, they're really she's she's bracketed something. Um, in the interest of making you forget the hinge that holds it together. And the hinge that holds that bracket together is none of this is possible without a conflict over who controls access and to rights, who, who controls access to using them and distributing them. And when we start to talk about making laws and creating police, it's about controlling a social, making a social order work so that the, dis the distribution of goods, of um, mm -hmm. the, the generation of wealth, all of that operates smoothly. So. Yeah. You know, she has an idea of what, you know, is, I think her, um, and you can take this all the way, I think, even to uh, uh, J.G.A. Pocock um, and his, 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 his arguments in his book, The, Machiav um, the Machiavellian, Machiavellian Moment. Yeah. yeah, where the United States is the last virtuous revolution. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's in that in that in that in that argument, right? It's the right. last one in which virtue, um, rather than uh, 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 the concrete um, rule, you know, the operations of organization and logic, it's the it's it's the last one in which there's a political grammar or things that correlate to each other, or equality um, mm. and yeah. liberty and uh, 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 um, civic rights. Like these things have a yeah. logic um, uh, uh, that you know, you might call linguistic, um, linguistically strong in terms of how he makes his argument, uh, how Pocock makes his argument, but it remains that within that field of thought, virtue kind of speaks to um, logic, um, not in the abstract, but in a system of words and languages and concepts that mm -hmm. supposedly cohere um, and, and, make, and make a unity. Um, and I think the so social revolution seems messy um, and that's why mm -hmm. it needs to be bracketed off. But, you know, yeah, that for me, it, 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 it really hinges on the fact that this is a conflict over who controls access and distribution of rights. And in that regard, um, counterinsurgents at the Capitol believe that the, the, forthcoming, the forthcoming future will deprive them of the access to rights and goods right. 
Um, and all of a sudden, those who were on the side of we are the world of bait, lofty ideas, those who run this is our country, you know, the, 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 the organizers and rulers of our country are of our, of our you know, background, you know, they're going to work for us. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's the, more than ever, I think because of the way, you know, the, the, the right feels about race, I don't think people really understand how stubborn that, 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 that commitment to mm-hmm. the only thing I have that's better than you is my whiteness. I'm going to hold on to it. Um, right. Right. It's the, it's the whiteness as property kind of. And it's, uh, yeah. it's like, we had it. Right. I don't think we think enough about like how these people are feeling right now. We had it. Yeah. We had it in our hands. We thought we were going to going to get another four years. I think some of these people thought this was going to be a new, a new Jacksonian era where right. Trump, creates a system and begin right. to appoint new, um, you know, uh, 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 the new head of state. And he, if you get Trump's um, sign off, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be able to yeah. walk into the White House. I think they thought this was the inauguration of a new Jacksonian. Although model. I wonder, Greg, tell me what you think, um, or John, whether that kind of investment in whiteness or the sort of, you know, the, the wages of whiteness always has that feeling of we almost had it and now we're losing it. If that's kind of like a constitutive dimension of it, because that's, you know, that's what we see um, in the civil war. That's what we see during reconstruction. That's what we see in, you know, um, all of the kind of moments of, of uh, violence against black people, lynching and, you know, all kinds of things. That's kind of like, in the weave of it, right? I think that, I th- well, I think we can always make in this, in this scenario links to, um, and, and I would just say the, the long shadow of the civil war kind of is, um, we're feeling it more right now. Um, mm-hmm. the, but yeah, I would, I would say it's always there. I just think it's different now because if I want, you know, they thought eight years, they thought for the, they thought eight years before Trump was a nightmare. Right. You wouldn't survive. And they came out with Trump. It's almost like after eight years with Obama, when everyone really thought it was going to just stay on the Democratic ticket and Hillary Clinton would win, people actually thought, some people actually really thought that we were, we were, we were turning a corner on some things. And mm-hmm. I think once, you know, Trump got elected and thinking about how people felt and how people looked um, the day after, the next few days after, mm-hmm. uh, it, was a, it was this shell shock. And right. I think it's a, it's a, it's a shell shock. Um, or I won't even say, I can't say a shell shock. It's a, we knew they were gonna steal it. We right. knew they were gonna do it. Um, they've been corrupt since they put that uh, black president in the office, right? There's, there's, a, there's a narrative here, um, right. just, you know, Okay, so maybe this is a good moment to uh, to shift to our recallable books uh, section. So I'm going to uh, ask you first, Greg, as our guest, what, what would you like to bring to the table? Um, so yeah, some, some thought on this. Um, I want to I, I pivot back to me talking about thinking about Ayanna Presley. Um, you know, we're here in Boston, <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 it, it hits real close to home. Um, but thinking about her in that, that, that Capitol building and basically 
attempting to occupy space that she had earned and worked to, to, to occupy um, in the Senate. And then to see, you know, these stories about the buttons being ripped out. I just, you know, it made me think about how black women in this, in, in, in particular, and it's very stark and, and I think on point in terms of being able to sort of like be spot on the money in this case, how black women try to work through these different geographies of power um, and map them differently and sort of say, I, I, I belong in the space and I'm gonna use it in a way that's different from yours and repeatedly have to come up across, you know, whether it be the plantation master, the overseer, the police, the teacher, um, um, the man, <laughs> whatever it may be, kind of trying to think about putting you back in place, pushing you out of space. Um, and so I was thinking about that a lot and it kind of uh, uh, brought up for me, Stephanie M. Camp's book, Closer to Freedom, uh, Enslaved Women and Everyday Resistance in the Plantation South, which is really the book that and lays out this idea of rival geographies and how black women traject, uh, you know, uh, move through them and how they are affected uh, by them. So yeah, that book um, kind of was very key for my thinking and talking about uh, and talking about and thinking about, you know, counterinsurgency at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks, John. Yeah, so I'm going to go back to, like I think the first ever scholarly book review I wrote in 1996 was this book by Charles Tilley called Popular Contention. When you were only five, John. That's what? Nice. When you were only five, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I was bald then too. Um, so it was called Popular Contention in Great Britain, 1758 to 1834. And I admit that sounds like a snooze of a title, but this is before the days of digital humanities, but Tilly and I think a team of researchers did something really amazing, which is they looked at the verb subject object combinations that different newspapers used to describe different kinds of uprising and discontent. And he's able to chart this genealogy of what he calls the rise of new collective repertoires of action. He actually has a whole analogy to jazz, to introducing a new musical motif and playing it out. And um, it was just such an eye opener to me because it was uh, actually you mentioned Pocock before, Greg, but it's the similar logic of like etymology as concept, you know, that the way that people use different verbs is not just going to tell you as a historian retrospectively what they were thinking, it's telling them what to think, you know, how to position one kind of violent action versus another violent action. And um, it's not a simple story. It's not like oh, well, the, the, the Tories described collective violence with these verbs and the Whigs described it with these other verbs, but it's more like a, it's kind of the ebb and flow of how different events take on, you know, different nuances and different meanings, depending on the sorts of verbs you use to describe the action. And uh, it was just an eye opener for me, that book. And I still, I went back to it this afternoon and I'm like, you know, this is still amazing, so. Great. All right, well, what I'm gonna bring um, is as usual, not the thing that I thought I was gonna bring at the beginning of this conversation, but instead George Lipsitz, The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, which is a mm. book that was written about 20 years ago. Um, and that really kind of um, thinks through the various mechanisms by which whiteness becomes this category that sort of like other forms of capital 
reaps benefits, material, ideological, institutional benefits. Um, and uh, I have not read the reissue, the 20th anniversary reissue of this, with, with, but I hear that it has a new introduction that speaks specifically about questions of um, white fears of loss and the rise of the, of the alt-right. So um, clearly relevant to our conversation. All right, so um, what remains is for us to thank Greg very much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. It was a good talk. Um, uh, a lot of, lot of wonderful things came up. I'm glad that I could participate. And yeah, yeah, well, well, let's all keep talking and listening, as you say. Yeah, definitely, all right. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with public books and is recorded and edited in the Media Lab of Brandeis Library, usually, and also in our, in our bedrooms and living rooms, by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, and production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Nye Kim. Mark Delello oversees and advises on technological matters, and we appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson and of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with our comments, criticisms, and suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or you can contact us via social media and our website, which is recallthisbook.org. If you enjoyed this show, uh, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or elsewhere. And you may be interested in checking out past episodes, including um, conversation with Hayal Akarsu on community policing in Turkey and with David Cunningham on the asymmetrical policing and its history in the United States. Um, so thank you all for joining us and goodbye until next time. <laughs>